Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. Um, well, I, I guess I would start a few years ago. The FBI came to my door in Shelburne one day. They said, uh, do you know who we are? I said, yes. They said, you know why we're here? I said, yes. They said, did you do it? I said, yes. This is Tom Hughes, and he's served time in state and federal prison for stealing money that he was supposed to be managing for other people. They said, okay, here's the tougher question. Did you do it to anybody we don't know about? And it took me a little longer to answer, but I thought, you know what, here's my opportunity to put the whole thing behind me. This was in 1999. Tom had been running a string of financial frauds in both Vermont and Maine as a banker and an accountant and the manager for a rock band. These crimes affected clients in nine other states. Over the course of 20 years, if you look at every dishonest, deceitful, miserable thing I did, it comes out to between eight and nine hundred thousand dollars. My actual criminal cases add up to less than even a hundred thousand dollars. Tom lives in Milton now. To set this interview up, I contacted him through his website, www.hireathief.com. As an ex-criminal, Tom now talks to accountants, law enforcement, college students about what goes through the head of someone who's inclined to steal money. You steal something. You you write that check. And then once, you know, you press the button that says transmit the wire transfer or you drop something in a mailbox and you can't retrieve your crime anymore, then you start to worry. And you're convinced that the next day you're going to go to work and everybody's going to know and you're going to be ruined. And then the next day you go to work and nothing happens. So you get over it. And then a couple of weeks later, you do the same thing, but you probably do it for more money. This month on the show, embezzlement in Vermont. Welcome to Brave Little State. I'm Alex Keefe. And I'm Angela Evansy. If you're just discovering this show, our philosophy is simple. Be brave, ask questions. And our sole purpose is to answer your questions about Vermont, our region, and its people. This month, a question from Sean Obarski of Winooski. What's with the high occurrence of embezzlement cases that we see in Vermont? Today, we try to untangle perception from fact. Later on, I learn a little bit about a myth involving stone walls and fairies. And they left openings at the bottom of the walls so the woodland fairies could pass through. They didn't have to climb over the walls. The woodland fairies? Woodland fairies. Okay. Yep. Welcome. Before we get started, we want to tell you that Brave Little State is made possible by the VPR Journalism Fund and by Darn Tough Vermont. For nearly 40 years, knitting premium quality all-weather performance socks in the sock capital of the world, Northfield, Vermont, Darn Tough is committed to making the most comfortable, durable, best-fitting socks money can buy. 
So to kick things off for this episode, we invited Sean Obarski into our studio. Yay! How fun! <laughs> Do you want to take a picture of you? Sure. Do you mind if I put the headphones on? So and we asked him, as we are wont to do, what made you so curious about embezzlement in Vermont? To be honest, um, I moved to Vermont about 10 years ago, and it seems almost monthly. You see a story on the news uh, of, it tends to be a little old lady in some rural part of Vermont that is charged with embezzlement. There are new details tonight on a town clerk's fall from grace. There is new fallout today from the resignation of a top state police official in Vermont. Police say she used a crafty scheme to swindle the state out of about $70,000. Now the former state employee has been released from jail. Not always a little old lady, but yeah. It tends to be animal shelters or, or some kind of community location, and it always just kind of struck me as odd. Sean is from Toledo, Ohio, where he says violent crimes more frequently make the news. I wondered if it was due to slower news days in Vermont, so this gets pushed towards the top, or if there really is a higher, uh, higher occurrences in, in the state. And that's what we wondered, too. Does Vermont really have a super high rate of embezzlement? And it turns out that just answering this simple question, how bad is it really, became its own complicated story. If you're like Sean and you've read news stories about the prevalence of embezzlement in this state, you've probably seen a quote from a guy named Chris Marquet. M-A-R-Q-U-E-T. Chris Marquet. I'm CEO and the founder of Marquet International. Chris is a private investigator and the author of The Marquet Report on Embezzlement. And it's gotten a good amount of press in Vermont. That's because it frequently identifies our state as being the most, quote, at risk for big ticket embezzlement. Yeah, I, I call it the embezzlement propensity factor. It's a mathematical amalgam of different factors, one being the population of the state uh, relative to the nation uh, together with... The embezzlement the propensity factor is a trademarked equation. And as you can hear, it's a complicated one. So you look at that one ratio and you're combining it with... It involves the number of cases in a state and how much money those cases add up to and state and national population and GDP, and you crunch all the numbers and... Vermont has, you know, one of the highest. It said in several years it's topped the list. Others has been in the top 10. Not great news for the Green Mountain State. You know, was there, is there something in the Vermont water? <laughs> so remember that we're talking about a ratio, not just the total number of cases or the total money lost. Back in 2013, which is the last time the Marquet Report came out, Vermont was the most at risk with seven embezzlement cases and over $2 million in losses. By comparison, New York had one of the highest overall losses from embezzlement, over $13 million, but one of the lowest embezzlement propensity factors due to some other factors in the ratio. But maybe you're still thinking, wait, seven cases in Vermont, that's it? That's it. Because the report only considers cases that involve $100,000 or more. And so it doesn't take into account all the lesser embezzlement cases. And you can imagine how many cases are going on where it's $10,000, $5,000, $500, you know, small numbers. Uh, I think it's staggering. So, yes, we're looking at the tip of the iceberg. Chris Marquet has a ton of smart things to say about this topic. He basically knows it inside and out. But right now I want to spend a little more time with this embezzlement propensity factor. 
This is a ranking that's appeared in lots of local news stories, including on VPR. Now, Chris, welcome back to the program. Welcome, Jane. Thank you for having me. What makes Vermont such a good or not good, but uh, strong candidate for embezzlement? Chris Marquet has talked to UVM's business school and the Vermont Government Finance Officers Association. I think it's fair to say he's helped shape the story that Vermont tells itself about embezzlement. But it turns out there's a pretty high-ranking state official who is, let's say, skeptical of his numbers. I have a problem with his methodology. And that person is Doug Hoffer, Vermont's state auditor. I've been a data guy for a long time. You know, you can't do a proper analysis without good data. And as far as Doug Hoffer is concerned, Chris Marquet doesn't have good data. Hoffer says only looking at cases above 100 grand doesn't paint an accurate picture. Sure, including smaller cases could make Vermont's numbers look worse, but of course the same goes for other states too. As for this embezzlement propensity factor... And if you have the product, in this case the quotient, of two ratios, and one of them is based on the state's GDP... Again, complicated data speak, but bear with me because Vermont's reputation is on the line. Hoffer says any equation that relies on GDP and population puts smaller states at a disadvantage. He says it skews the numbers. GDP and population, we're so small. And in fact, you might find this interesting. I ran some numbers because I was curious about what would happen if you changed the numbers for Vermont. Assume that Vermont had one large incident, as we did a couple of years ago with the Hardwick This was an embezzlement of $1.6 million from the Hardwick Electric Department that came to light in 2011. By Hoffer's math, a single big case like that one could catapult Vermont to the top of the rankings. It doesn't matter what you do. If you use this formula, Vermont is always going to be in the top five or six. No, that can, that's just not right, because uh, if you have less less cases, the, the ratio is going to be lower. Um, the number is going to go down. Chris Marquet says he doesn't agree with Hoffer that you can plug just any numbers into the embezzlement propensity factor equation and make Vermont look bad. So, no, I, I don't agree with that. Uh, I don't think that's accurate. I'm trying to balance the two pieces, you know, the number of cases and the relative economic losses in the state. And Marquet's rankings do show a mix of small and big states that are at a high risk for embezzlement. Montana and South Dakota are in the top 10, but so are Texas and Virginia. Our neighbor, New Hampshire, well, the Marquet report actually deems it as one of the states least at risk for embezzlement. Anyway, Marquet says he actually caught wind of Hoffer's critique a few years ago, and he tweaked his equation to improve it. And now he says he's happy with how it is. I think any formula can be criticized. Uh, you know, it's, it's nothing's ever going to be 100% accurate. Again, this is meant to be an approximation. As for the $100,000 cutoff for cases in the report, Chris Marquet says it's pure pragmatism. The reality is we had to draw a line somewhere. We could have drawn the line at $50,000, but that would have made the body of data so massive that we would never get the report done. Of course, embezzlement does happen in Vermont, and Doug Hoffer recognizes that. He says it's a serious crime, not just here, but in all states. Now, having said that, we may well be an outlier. I just don't believe it based on this data. The Marquet Report is self-published. It's not peer-reviewed. I wanted to know if other Vermont officials had a take on it. I reached out to Vermont's former state auditor, Tom Salmon. He had no comment. Our attorney general, Bill Sorrell, didn't have a direct critique of the report, but he said in a small state like ours, high-profile cases can skew not just statistics, but also public perception. 
And he said he's looking forward to the next Marquet report because he expects embezzlement in Vermont will have gone down. Chris Marquet says he hopes to release new numbers in the next few months. So just one more thing about Auditor Doug Hoffer. In 2014, he critiqued the Marquet report in a memo that he filed with the state. And in this memo, he acknowledged something crucial about other sources of national embezzlement data, places we might look to corroborate Chris Marquet's data. They don't exist. So in this memo, you said uh, many people turn to the Marquet report because there's, quote, no other source of information about the incidence of embezzlement among states. And, and I'm running into that, too. Where is the data? How can we get a sense of this to know whether it's an outlier or not? Well, unlike many other types of crime, certainly violent crime, which the FBI tracks because it's reported nationally to them, I don't believe anyone's collecting this data. This was kind of a tough pill to swallow because our question asker, Sean, was all about the numbers. When we asked him how he thought we should start our reporting, here's what he said. We would probably want to see how many cases that we've seen in the last 10 years or so and then compare that on a per capita and look at national averages, maybe dollar amounts too. My anticipation is we would see higher numbers than the national average here. So that's how I would start. Easier said than done, Sean. But here's what we can do. We would probably want to see how many cases that we've seen in the last 10 years or so. Okay, these numbers do exist. The state keeps track of all the embezzlement incidents that are reported by the state police and local agencies. These are all cases, not just cases above 100 grand like Chris Marquet tallies. And from 2004 to 2014, Vermont had a range of 61 to 126 incidents per year. The thing about these numbers is there's no way to know whether the case led to charges or even an arrest. Then there are the federal cases. I got a count of those going back to 2013, thinking I'd be able to pick up where Chris Marquet left off in his last report. I'll explain in a second why that didn't work out. But the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Vermont has prosecuted 12 cases since 2013. The thing about these numbers is that they also included cases like securities fraud and investment fraud and other types of fraud that might not be coded as embezzlement in other counts. So far, so good? Maybe dollar amounts, too. So, Sean, the state tracks different ranges of dollar amounts, but everything above 50 grand gets lumped together. This means it's hard to track the really big cases. The U.S. Attorney's Office wouldn't provide dollar amounts for their cases or any other identifying information I could use to research the cases on my own. And compare that on a per capita and look at national averages. National averages? Sean, have you seen that Coen Brothers movie, Hail Caesar? Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple, Sean? Would the detour so simple? Let's pause for a moment on the state data. Short of taking a bunch of time to build a brand new data set, it's difficult to get a solid grasp of the number of cases and the total money lost to embezzlement, let alone run the numbers to get our embezzlement propensity factor in the years since the last Marquet report came out. Also, the recent numbers for state offenses may be off. I got some data help from the Crime Research Group in Montpelier. We are an independent nonprofit entity. 
I talked to Dr. Robin Weber. She's the research director. There's a gap in our collection of these numbers, and part of that has to do with just um, some logistics on law enforcement side. Weber says some critical agencies are actually having trouble sharing their data with the state. So there's a whole swath of, of, of data that's missing, but we know that it's missing and the state is working to correct that. And how long has it been missing? A year and a half. Okay. <laughs> a year and a half, yeah. <laughs> To recap, the state numbers leave a little something to be desired. Still with me, Sean? To get a sense of the national numbers, I called up Gerald Cliff. He's the research director at the National White Collar Crime Center. Should I introduce you as Gerald or Jerry? Which would you prefer? Uh, it doesn't matter. I don't get Vermont radio. You can call me anything you want. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry is based in West Virginia. And he says there's just no place to find good national data. Yeah, it's 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 not easy to get. And it's it's really, you know, white collar crime statistics in general are very, very, very difficult to come by anything that, that could be considered accurate. Jerry says the FBI actually does track embezzlement, but... They don't differentiate by state. They only give a total number. That means we can't see how we measure up to, say, Maine. The FBI also counts arrests, which are very different from convictions. Plus, you know, the the FBI doesn't force state and local law enforcement to participate. Most do. Voluntary reporting. So if you don't feel like telling the FBI about all the embezzlement in your state, you don't have to. Jerry said something interesting when we spoke. He said he'd never heard anyone talk about Vermont's so-called embezzlement problem until I called him to set up an interview. I had not heard anything like that until we spoke yesterday. <laughs> you know, I then went to look for other references to it. And what came up in his search? The Marquet Report. It was about the only, you know, the only real source out there that differentiates on a state-by-state basis. So, And so that's sort of the authority. Well, I don't know if authority is a good word. I would say it's uh, probably the best source. Gotcha. And it all comes full circle. So, the numbers are messy, and there aren't a lot of them. Embezzlement does happen in Vermont, but other than our possibly questionable propensity factor, it's really hard to say if there's actually more or less of a crime here than any other state. So, why does embezzlement get so much attention here? You know, our most common crimes in the state, sadly, are domestic violence and DUI. Uh, Embezzlement rarely breaks the top 10. Again, Dr. Robin Weber from the Crime Research Group. Embezzlement gets a lot of news coverage um, because it involves a violation of public trust. And uh, that's hurtful to a community. Trust. For a lot of people, this is a fundamental element of life in a small town and in a big city, really anywhere. And there's kind of a collective damage when that trust is broken. It's the trust, and then you have to look at who the victims are. Um, and the victims are the public in a lot of cases. Uh, you know, there were the high-profile uh, embezzlement cases that involved, you know, town managers or town clerks. Um, so that's people's property taxes. Uh, that's people's livelihood that has been taken from them. There's something sort of universally shocking about an embezzlement story especially in Vermont, where we pride ourselves on community. 
Of course, you can't measure a state's trust levels any more than you can measure, say, embezzlement across states. But maybe these stories aren't about the numbers. They're emotional and destabilizing. And they have unexpected characters. Anyone from rich or poor background, I I certainly didn't grow up poor. Tom Hughes of HireAthief.com was one of those characters. Anyone is capable of doing this. You're people who are truly up against it with a financial emergency at home. Most of them are still not going to steal money to fix it. It, it crosses so many lines that I, I tell business owners, you will not see this coming. Embezzlement stories make good headlines. As a reporter, I will confess that I open every single press release about an embezzlement. The daycare center, the local ambulance... I don't open every release about a DUI, and there are way more of those. And is there also a kind of morbid curiosity that gets stirred up by an embezzlement story? You mentioned choosing your victims opportunistically. Listen to this exchange between Sean, our question asker, and Tom. Did you ever find yourself choosing a victim out of spite, maybe a client that you didn't like or care for as much? I had a client like that. I resented the way he talked to me. He would throw out the the MBA buzzwords. He was a wonderful guy, but he just had this, I didn't like his attitude. Um, I stole, well, it's funny, when he finally discovered the crime, he said, uh, I got another accountant. You stole $2,500 from me. I said, you need another accountant. I stole $8,300 from you. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny in an I-shouldn't-be-laughing kind of way. For victims of these crimes, there is major financial and emotional fallout. Obviously, Tom Hughes can't speak for all embezzlers, but he says he was operating from a place of pure greed. First John chapter 2 says, don't be in love with the world or the things of the world. And I can tell you that when I was living my old life, I was desperately in love with the things of the world. I had to have stuff. I had to travel. I had to look successful. But things are different now. Tom lives modestly with his second wife. Today, I really couldn't care less. We're not desperate to impress our neighbors. We're not desperate to buy cool stuff. Um, We're just content with what we have, building something stable rather than uh, putting on a show. And I think that's what keeps me honest. It's all kind of tied up with the desire to be confident in the world we live in, whether that's trusting the people in our community or being okay with who we are and what we have. It's a delicate balance and something that's not easy to measure. That story was produced and reported by Angela Edenson. And we're going to completely switch gears now and answer a question about, uh, it's kind of hard to explain. But first. Thanks again to our sponsor, Darn Tough Vermont. Knitting premium quality, all-weather performance socks for all of life's active pursuits. Still made locally in Northfield, Vermont, and guaranteed for life. Visit them at darntough.com. Okay, back to second question. It comes to us from a guy named Rob. Uh, Rob Maynard from Johnson, Vermont. And it bears a little explanation, so just kind of stick with me here. Rob works in maple syrup, and for his job, he says he spends a lot of time in forests. Okay, so um, I I installed maple uh, pipeline for other sugar makers. So we just see lots of interesting things in the woods, and this one was really curious to me. 
curious because he'd never seen anything like this during all his years in the woods. It was a dry stone wall in Jeffersonville, the kind of stone wall you've probably seen running through forests all over New England. You know, no mortar, just stone stacked on top of each other, but nice. Just a nice, pretty stone wall like you might see a, uh, a landscaper built. You know, they were very well built. But they had these openings. Openings, he says, right there along the bottom of the wall where it meets the ground. A bunch of them. Struck me as, huh, what's going on here? Rob says the openings in this wall in the woods in Jeffersonville, they occurred at semi-regular intervals. And they almost looked like tiny little doorways. In talking to an Irish friend of mine, he said the walls were built by Irish stonemasons. And they left openings at the bottom of the walls so the woodland fairies could pass through. They didn't have to climb over the walls. The woodland fairies? Woodland fairies. Okay. Yep. So the idea is that the woodland fairies, which presumably are small-ish creatures, they would they would walk sort of through the wall so they didn't have to jump over this big stone wall, which to them, being small woodland fairies, would, would be too big. It would be too large. Yeah, it would be, you know, two, three times taller than them. Depending on the height of the ferry, I guess. Yeah, depending on the height. Yeah. It kind of sounds bizarre, um, a little bit out there, but this was a real thing. These openings were built for a reason, and I'm just curious, is this the actual reason? I'll tell you right now, this piece does not address the existence or non-existence of woodland fairies, their height, their climbing abilities, etc. Instead, I went the architectural route and reached out to some dry stone wall experts. They call themselves wallers. We heard from a master waller in England who says he'd never heard this thing about the fairy doorways before. We also reached out to the Dry Stone Wall Association of Ireland, and they hadn't heard of it either. But they did refer us to a group here in Vermont, a group called the Stone Trust. So we called them up. Hello, this is Brian. Brian, hey, it's Al Key from VPR. Yeah, I've got a tractor coming by. Hold on one sec. I caught Brian Post on a job site. He is the executive director of the Stone Trust, based in Dummerston. It's a nonprofit dedicated to the preservation of Vermont's dry stone wall heritage. I don't. Before I get too far, I should ask you: Are you working on a stone wall right now as we're talking? Um, well, I, I I was. I'm about a uh, hundred feet away from it now, but yes. <laughs> and did you put little holes in the bottom of it at all? Uh, on this particular wall, I did not. No. Have you ever put little holes in the bottom of a stone wall before? Um, I have on occasion. Was it for fairies? Um, I have not had experience building um, pass-throughs for uh, uh, fairies. Brian says he actually did some research before our interview, but he couldn't find anything about fairies in Stonewall folklore. I have not heard from any wallers or found any written information that really suggested that was done, um, particularly for fairies. Uh, there's certainly a lot of other practical reasons that small pass-throughs were left in walls. Practical reasons. I got the same answer from the wallers I heard from in Ireland and the U.K., that these little doorways were often used to let animals through. Brian Post says a small pass-through is known as a smoot. And 
that's uh, S-M-O-O-T. He says there are water smoots for drainage, or he'll build a smoot to accommodate a large tree root. One British waller we heard from talked about rabbit smoots, you know, for rabbits. And then another term that's very common is a lunky particularly for uh, bigger holes for sheep to pass through. A lunky, he says, is maybe a couple feet square. It's sometimes called a sheep creep, which would make sense, Brian says, because most stone walls in northern New England were originally built for sheep, and these little holes would help neighboring farmers separate out their herds if they got mixed up. But to be clear, says Brian Post, in all his studies of dry stone walls in New England, the U.K., and Ireland, he has not heard of the Woodland Ferry Doorway explanation. None of the wallers I heard from had either, not even the Irish ones. Still, as Brian Post points out, we can't definitively say that's never been the case. You know, I, I could see it as something that was the case. I could also see it as someone joking with uh, uh, Flatlander, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> And you can find pictures of lunkies and smoots at bravelittlestate.org. Thanks for listening to the show this month. Brave Little State is about what you want it to be about. So head over to bravelittlestate.org to share your questions about Vermont and our region and vote on the question you think we should tackle next. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Journalism Fund and from Darn Tough Vermont. Our editor is Lynn McRae, and our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode was by David Saitstay, Jazar, and Nick Jaina. And by Pottington Bear and John J. Kimmel. A special thanks to WCAX and New England Cable News for the use of their archival audio, and to Hillary Niles and Jeffrey Wallen for data help. Here at VPR, there are lots of people who make this show possible. This month, a special shout-out to our engineer, Chris Albertine, who always lets us borrow that cord. Chris, you know the one. For the speakers? We'll be back next month when I take on this question. Why are utility rates so high in Vermont? And what are all those hidden charges that I see on my bill? Until then, leave us a review in iTunes, find us on Twitter and Instagram at BraveStateVT. And remember, be brave. Ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.